letter of Revelation. That's what we've been studying the last few weeks. The difficulty in teaching through a book chapter upon chapter is that if you missed any of them or you missed a couple of them, it's kind of challenging to jump right into what you might think is the middle of the movie and have no idea what happened in the scenes before. Um, so I recognize Revelation is a pretty challenging read to begin with. I've been encouraging us as a church family to read through uh, the letter of Revelation together this summer. Um, but I want to see if I can make reading it a little bit easier by giving you one, uh, one tool before we jump into this this morning that might help you. And its effectiveness is directly proportional to my ability to explain it clearly. So I don't know how well I'll do. But um, I, I think one of the challenges of reading Revelation is we tend to read it the same way we read other multi-chapter novels or multi-chapter books. And what I mean by that is we, we start at the beginning of the book, which we should, and we assume that the book is on a linear timeline. In other words, that there's a definite beginning, and that's chapter 1. And that after the events of chapter 1 are complete, we then come to chapter 2. And then next there's chapter 3. And every single chapter is moving in a linear way, not on top of each other or out of order, but the book is arranged chronologically. There is a beginning, there is an end, and every scene in the story builds upon the other previous scenes until we get to the end. There's a first, a then, a nextness to everything um, if you read Revelation that way, you'll run into a lot of problems, especially when Jesus is born in chapter 12. And uh, I would encourage you not to put the pressure on yourself to read through Revelation thinking, okay, there's seven seals, so there must be a first seal, and then it's all done. And then after it's completely done, then there is a next seal. It happens once in history, and then it will be all done, and that must happen between the the first seal and the third seal, and it can't get, get, get out of order, um, and that every part of Revelation is chronological, and we spend a lot of time trying to figure out where exactly are we today in 2017? Are we somewhere between the fifth seal and the sixth seal? Are we somewhere within the seventh seal between the fourth and the fifth trumpet? That becomes difficult when you look at some of these seals and trumpets as things that you could say they have happened already, and they're happening now, and they may happen again later on. So if you read this like a chapter book, if you read this like a multi-chapter novel where the timeline is linear, you're going to run into a lot of problems and you're going to take a, a difficult read and make it hopelessly complex. Can I suggest a better way to help you understand this? Read this as though you're sitting in a seat in the production trailer of a Monday night football game or whatever other live event you want to imagine. If football does nothing for you, this won't help. But imagine you're sitting in a production trailer and you recognize that there are cameramen all over the field, all over the property. And every one of them has a live camera feed and they're feeding that into the production trailer where you can see at one time simultaneously 50 different camera angles all telling a different part of the same overall arc of a story. If you imagine it that way, what you have is the Apostle John sitting in a seat in a production trailer and Jesus is the producer. And he is saying, John, I want you to look at this camera angle right now. You're going to look at camera one. I'm going to show you camera one. And he's going to run that camera angle the whole way to the end. And then he's going to hit the rewind button and go back in time and now show him camera angle two. And he's going to show him that the whole way to the end. And then he's going to hit the rewind button and show camera three. And all of these cameras 
may be recording events in real time. They may be happening while they're overlapping one another. They may be happening simultaneously. They may be moving at different paces. This is the difficulty we have with a God who does not adhere to finite rules of time. You and I try to take our finite understanding of time, that there's a beginning and an end and everything moves along in a linear way. Man invented time, not God. Man uses time as a way to have references for things. Time does not apply to an infinite God. And so Revelation is written in such a way that you see seal one opened. And we want to say, well, seal one is called seal one because it happens first. Not necessarily. It's seal one because that is one seal that is going to be opened. And we see seal one open, and we see it run to some kind of an end. And then we rewind, and we go, and we see that there's a a different seal that's open. It might not happen next. It may not happen then. But it has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to happen. So put yourself in John's shoes and understand the challenge of he's just minding his own business in solitary confinement one day. The resurrected Jesus shows up, scares him half to death, and then he sees a vision. He sat in a production trailer, pen and paper in hand, while God says, all right, I'm going to, Jesus says, all right, I'm going to show you some things. And he shows him all the stuff and he has to write down what he sees. That's some of the challenge we have in reading Revelation. But I think if you can look at this less as First, middle, next, last. And everything in Revelation is happening chronologically. If you try and look at it that way, like I said, it will fall apart completely when you get to chapter 12. You'll have to break your own rules. You'll have to break your own rules and make exceptions for that to fit it in there. It's better off to understand that each of these individual camera angles is showing us a necessary part. It's revealing to us something that was previously hidden. That's what Revelation means, something that is no longer hidden. And we see all through Revelation, things that used to be hidden are being revealed. We start with the letters of the churches. And Jesus says to them, I know everything you're doing. You think you're hiding it from me, but now it's revealed. Here's everything that you're doing, and here's the proof. Let me write it out for you. We see then, you know, after the letters of the church, we see these seals opened up. And what God says is somewhere in this general period of history, between the first coming of Jesus And the second coming of Jesus, all these other things take place. So those of us that need linear time stamps, that's about what we've got in Revelation. That's the concrete. The concrete is these events take place between the birth of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And what we see is what's going on in between. Many people with a... I don't want to get too deep into this, but I think many of us, if you grew up in a Pentecostal evangelical church, a lot of what we've been taught is that... These events aren't really taking place over this whole span. They're all packed together somewhere here. And we're kind of just waiting for them to come. And anytime something hits the news, we try and figure out, was that this seal? Was that that seal? Where are we in the timeline? I'm not saying it's a waste of time. But at the same time, it's not the best way to read Revelation. You will get mired up in the trees and you will miss the forest. What is the big story that Revelation is trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us this. God is angry at sin. Evil must be punished. God has been He is currently, and he will continue to sound seals and trumpets of warning to convince the entire world to repent. You can turn to God and receive the gift of eternal life, or you can turn away from God and perish, but the time where there's grace and a time for you to choose is getting wafer thin day by day by day by day by day. That's the whole story of Revelation. Every seal individually tells us that. Every trumpet individually tells us that. But when you look at the overwhelming amount of signals, God's basically saying, let me reveal to you what all these things that are currently happening are really supposed to be telling you. 
Let me tell you why there really is war. Let me tell you why there really are earthquakes. Let me tell you why there really is famine and plagues and disease. Let me reveal to you through these seals and trumpets that these are not just like they thought in the first century, that the gods are angry because of the Christians. They weren't that far off. But the entire, the entire decaying earth around us is a gigantic warning sign that God is in the process of redeeming this broken world, but to do so, there must be a complete wiping away and perishing of all the broken systems. And he doesn't want any one of us to get swept away with the judgment. And so he wants no one to be without excuse, so he reveals to us how exactly he's been trying to show us to repent, how he's been showing us that there's not an indefinite amount of time. And he's gone through painstaking detail, camera angle after camera angle after camera angle after camera angle, And what he's saying to the church is, listen, if I need to be more specific, I will. But he's probably not wanting us to figure out, well, is this China? Is this Russia? Is this thermonuclear holocaust? There's value in figuring some of that out. But at the end of the day, God obviously didn't think we need to be that specific. He would have made it that specific. What he wants us not to miss is the fact that this world is coming to an end. Turn to him and be spared. Turn away from him and you'll perish. There are warning signs all around you all the time. Everybody who's ever read this letter at any point in history could have gotten the same thing that we get when we look at the big picture of this. The first century church could have looked at the same thing and said, we know, hey, we've seen one, two, three, and four of the seals already happen. We called them the plagues of Egypt. They would have read it and got the same warning you and I are supposed to get. So now that I've bloodied that point into the ground, let's move forward a little bit this morning. I just want to make sure we get an idea of what this is saying and what this isn't saying. Last week, we looked at four, well, two weeks ago, we looked at four different camera angles from Revelation chapter 8. We looked at four of the camera angles that we call the trumpets, and we saw each angel in that camera angle showing us that God is sounding a trumpet warning the entire world that evil has been punished, evil is being punished around you right now, and evil will continue to be punished all around us. And we would be wise to turn to God in repentance rather than to stand unaided thinking we could be accepted and suffer under his judgment. And this brings us to where we're at today, chapters 9 and 10. We'll touch on chapter, um, we'll touch on chapter 11 next week. Uh, but in chapter 9 and 10, Jesus shows us three new camera angles. He says, all right, now let's rewind and let's go to the fifth trumpet, let's, and then let's see how that goes to the end. Then let's go back to the sixth trumpet and show what that shows us. Uh, the, the first of the two camera angles we see this week is the fifth trumpet. And when the fifth trumpet sounds, we have demonic scorpion locusts that come up out of the abyss and are given permission to torment people but not kill them for a period of five months. That's just weird. And then we have... Uh, something a lot less weird, I say sarcastically, the the next camera angle we see in chapter 9 is the sixth trumpet. And John sees an army of 200 million strong released from the river Euphrates. And they go out and they cause more death and destruction. After these two trumpets are sound, John describes the human response following those two trumpets being sounded. And this is in your notes and I'll read it to you. Uh, a short segment from chapter 9, beginning at verse 20. The people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders 
or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So what we see is after camera, these, what's unique about the four camera angles we looked at two weeks ago is that was kind of God's judgment against nature. Now this week we see God's judgment poured out specifically upon human beings, which is why in between those two groupings you see this eagle flying, and I know there's been lots of discussion about what it is. All I know is that, you know, the people who would have heard it first would have said, oh, the eagle is the bird we think flies the highest and probably has the best view of everything that's happening at this time. And the eagle's saying, oh, I can see not only the first four camera angles, I can see the next three, and it's going to get bad. It's even going to get worse than this. Warning, warning, warning is what we see. Uh, and then we see these last two t- camera angles. We see a 200 million person army. We see demon locusts released. They torment. They make people wish they were dead, but they can't die. That's how bad it is. And then we see yet uh, uh, an interlude here. Uh, in chapter 10, we see a third camera angle. So camera angle one, demon scorpion locusts, right? Camera angle two is 200 million person something, 200 million something army released from the river Euphrates. They go out on to, to kill and destroy and harm people. And then you have this third camera angle, and it's a total shift. Um, because these last six camera angles are pretty bad, and if you're a Christian hearing this for the first time, or you're a Christian reading it for the hundredth time, it is jarring. It is stark. It is scary. And then you see this next camera angle, and what we see is an angel coming down from heaven, and the angel gives a small open scroll to John to eat. It's just weird. He just gives him a scroll to eat. Um, It's not like the pot pie and the things that Moses was talking about earlier. This is paper with writing on it, which John eats, and he finds that it tastes sweet at first and then sours in the stomach. This is just a challenging read. What do we do with all these demonic locusts coming out of the abyss for five months, and then what do they mean by a 200 million something being released from the river Euphrates by four angels that had been bound up, and then you got an angel coming down and tells John to eat some paper? It's just, I understand how people outside of Christianity, even inside, say this is just weird. It is strange. Um, here's what we see then in chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me. This is John again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was indeed sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. And there we have chapter 10. So what do we do with all this in uh, 18 minutes? I'll do the best I can. The big idea is this. Here's what I think these two chapters are showing us. And quite candidly, I think all of Revelation is showing us. But if it's true of all of Revelation, it should be true of these two chapters as well. Here's what God's trying to get through to us. If we reject the trumpets, and I leave that in quote, you can put in the warnings, the signs. If we reject the trumpets of God's love, his word, and his church, his final but harshest remaining trumpet to bring us to repentance is judgment. I know not everybody in the room is a parent, and so this illustration will fall short to a degree. But as a parent, there are times I need to discipline my child, or at the very least, I need to convince him that there is a right way and a wrong way to handle anything. And I much prefer when I can just speak to him outside of a moment of conflict and just out of my love for him say, you know, son, you know, please, it's not appropriate to smear hummus all over the kitchen counter. Because I love you and I want life to go well for you. And when you smear it over the kitchen counter, life does not go well for you or for us. 
You know, I would love if he would just respond to my love. But you also recognize as a parent that sometimes you can love your kids right into stubborn rebellion. (laughs) And so sometimes you have to change approaches. My least favorite thing is, you know, stepping up punishments to the very nth degree that we have available to us at home. I hate it. It is the worst. It does not feel good. But out of my love for my son, at the end of the day, I have to, as a parent, find any way possible for me out of my love for him to convince him that there's just certain things that are right and there's certain things that are wrong. God says the same thing to all humanity through Revelation. I have sent you my love. I've shown you through my son hanging on the cross. I have provided for you my Bible that has the pathway to eternal life inside of it. All of it is true and has been preserved for you. I have established my church, places like Echo Community Church and other churches filled with people who have been changed by me, who are saying to all of our unreached friends and family, God exists. It is true. Come into relationship with him. And what he's saying is, but some of you, many of you are rejecting all of those things, but I care enough about you to give you every last opportunity. If you'll reject the trumpet of my love, if you'll reject the trumpet of my son, if you will dismiss the testimony of the church, my last option is judgment. And that's a warning to all of us. Because when you get stuck in sin, you might think God's okay with it because you haven't gotten judgment yet. But the Bible is pretty clear. God goes through a pattern with most of us. First, he sends his Holy Spirit to convict you and make you aware of your sin. There's something in your conscience or in your heart that says, I've done wrong. And the Bible says you either yield to that or you have to argue with that and somehow make your heart less sensitive and soft and harden yourself against that voice in your head that's telling you to make it right. And what happens is that progressively over time, you harden your heart so much so that when you do wrong, you feel nothing. So then God usually sends a messenger. He sends something outside of you to give you yet another warning before he exposes you. Now, sometimes these things happen in quick succession, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes he skips steps. But usually someone or something in your life gives you yet another warning. There's a trumpet around you that says, if you keep doing it, this is what it's leading towards. You best stop. You best change. And all through the Bible, you'll find when people resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit and when they resist the messengers, ultimately God has to expose our sin and let us suffer under judgment. But if you're still breathing and you're suffering under judgment, you still have a chance to repent and get it right. All of Revelation is showing us that if humanity will continue to resist the truth of Jesus, the love of the church, and the truth of the word of God, all God has left and will not spare us from is judgment. But the motivation behind it is to motivate us to repent before it's too late because the reason there's a pause between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet is at the seventh trumpet it's too late. At the seventh trumpet, God knows that when that thing sounds, there's no more grace. So maybe that could account for, this is a theory, why there is a pause between these two trumpets. Because possibly God knows that there's finality at the seventh trumpet and he wants to give as much time as possible. The other reason why uh, that there's a pause between these two trumpets is because you hear silence in heaven and all the worship songs stop and what you do hear reflected in chapter 10 is the prayers of the church that are going up. Saying, God, how much longer are we going to have to suffer through all of this brokenness, through all of these trumpets, through all of this decay? How much longer until you descend from heaven and beat back all of these evil forces? And what we see is that the angel comes down with a very small open scroll. It doesn't have much to say. God God does not have much left to say here. It's not meant to be hidden. It is open. You take it. You eat it. 
John says at first it tastes good, but then it sours. In other words, what, what basically John is saying for a Christian, when you think about the second coming of Christ and the rapture, at first it sounds really, really, really exciting. It sounds sweet to us. We get to go to heaven. But then the more you think about it, it gets sour because you're like, not everybody I know will go with me. And so for the Christian, the, the, the second coming of Christ is bittersweet. For, this, for the Christian, the second coming of Christ is on one hand, I want to go be with Jesus, but on the other hand, I want my sister-in-law, and I want my neighbors, and I want, you know, my close friends that, that I'm making. I want them to go with me, and I know that if that trumpet sounded today, they wouldn't. And so we see some of that taking place here. So um, that's a little bit about what happened in chapter 8. Let's look at these other, I'm going to, well, I've got to cut all that out. Can we cut that out? Point number one, the fifth trumpet, chapter 9. What do we see happen here? Powerful demonic forces will be released to torment people, but there is no force in Revelation as powerful as Jesus. That's what we see here. Let me read to you this description he has in chapter 9. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. And he wasn't a star, so this is some type of angel probably. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The most accurate translation there is the word abyss. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and the air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like woman's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron, and their wings roared like an enemy of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions, and for five months they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit, the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, the destroyer. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. This would have reminded the first hearers of the eighth plague of Egypt, the plague of the locusts. When they hear that, locusts as an animal as a, with, with the power, but it says these are not ordinary locusts that are being released here. They are, these are locusts with the power of scorpions, and they are let loose upon the earth. Now, actual locusts are different from these demonic locusts. Actual locusts, you know what they eat? Everything in sight. They eat all vegetation. They come in plagues and in hordes. These specific locusts are different. Real scorpions, real scorpions are six inches long. They look like lobsters. They grab you with their two front claws while they sting you with their tail. So these things that are being released are not just locusts and they're not just scorpions and they're not just animals. They are demonic scorpion locusts. They don't eat vegetation. They're told, in fact, by someone, which is a key part of the story. They are given instruction. They can't do whatever they want. They are under the control of something or someone more powerful than they are. That says, you may not eat vegetation. Instead, go torment people. You may not kill the people. There are limitations on how bad you're allowed to be. It doesn't say they're not capable of it. It says they're under the authority of the voice that's telling them, this is your purpose. This is how long you can do it. And it will be miserable. But you are not more powerful than the voice. The voice we hear here is the voice of none other than God himself. And what this shows us uh, in so many words is this. Demonic power is very, very, very real. 
it's not just for Frank Peretti novels, okay? There are people who get nervous when we talk about angels and demons in church, and they see angels in every cloud and demons behind every lampshade. I'm not that guy, but I will tell you this. If God could peel back uh, your vision and let you see a manifestation of the demonic and the angelic activity that actually goes on all the time, it would shock you to wordlessness. What we see here is that there are very, very real demonic powers that somewhere bef- between when Jesus came the first time and the second time have been, will continue to be, and will ultimately be unleashed to torment people. They will grab on to people. They will sting people. They will, they're not coming to, to eat plants and trees. They're coming to torment people. Now, it says five months. Um, I don't want to make too much or too little of it. Five months is the average lifespan of a regular locust. Okay, They would have understood that. What it really means, is, I think what it really is telling us, is that as powerful as these locusts are, they still have a beginning and an end. As powerful as they are, they still can't do whatever they want because evil will never defeat God. And what we see here is this. These demon locusts are giving power to torment everyone except those who have been sealed by God. And that term to be sealed by God is not new to Revelation. It's all through the epistles of the New Testament. It says this, if you decide to become a Christian, if you decide to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are sealed, Paul says in his letter, with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. You are sealed like they would have understood. You are a document that's got a seal on it. And that seal is only put on by the signet ring of the Holy Spirit. And that says if you've been saved, it uses better language than that. It says if you've been saved and you've experienced this, you can say, I recognize. My testimony is that something new lives in me. There's a power in me that has taken me up. And that power we understand is the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament tells us that Holy Spirit is a down payment guarantee of your future in heaven. In other words, God doesn't want you to wonder whether you're going to make it to heaven or not. He's given you new life in the Holy Spirit. He says that's a down payment. You've been sealed. So what this says is this. If you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the devil and his demons cannot possess you. They can interfere with life around you, but God has put limits on what Satan can do. I want you to see that for the people who are not sealed by God, the people who do not have Jesus, the power of Jesus living in their life through the Holy Spirit, they are susceptible to all of the demonic attacks of the enemy. It will torment them. It will make them miserable to the point where they wish that they could die, but they won't be able to. These demons come out of the abyss. How bad is the abyss when Jesus confronted the demonic spirits in the gospel of Luke and gave them a choice to go live in pigs or go back to the abyss? Do you know where they picked? The pigs. How bad is the abyss? Bad place. But I want you to understand, as real as these demonic powers are, and they are real, I tell people all the time, don't go around trying to pick fights with demons. I'm going to go pick fights with demons. They will tear you up if you're not in Christ. They will tear you up. But at the end of the day, you and I don't need to read this in panic. If you have the seal of the Holy Spirit in your life, these demons may interfere around you. They may mess with different things in your life, but they cannot sting you. They cannot possess you. And if the demons are not allowed to to possess people, possess Christians, I should say, during the tribulation, then it makes sense that through any point of history, demons are not allowed to possess those people who are sealed by Jesus. 
But you also need to hear this. If you reject Jesus, you are vulnerable to the attacks of all of the demonic forces of hell. And it will be that bad that you would prefer death to dealing with another moment because the enemy wants to destroy you. My theory is uh, a lot of the demonic activity, they don't have permission to kill you. They'll just drive you to suicide and you'll you'll do their work for them. The end of the spiral of all of that is is willfully ending one's death. So you have to see two sides of the same coin there. We see one of the trumpets is saying, look at all the demonic activity in the world around us. And I don't have enough time this morning to go through and point it out to you. In fact, I think it's pretty obvious enough that if you're woke, you see it. The demonic activity behind so many different things. So many different things. Uh, What I have seen more recently is that it's less and less uh, murky. It's more and more clear and blatant. It's not even disguised. It's just out in the open, but there's so many people that are sleeping on it, they just miss it. Um, But it's just right there in front of us. So get woke and stay woke when it comes to demonic activity. Don't be part of it. Don't get around it. Don't mess with it. At the same time, you don't have to live in fear because as powerful as the enemy is, our God is infinitely more powerful. And that is the message of this, this trumpet in Revelation. Much more to say there, much other things that you can dig into. I left a whole lot for you to think about. I left a whole lot I didn't talk about. Point number two, the next camera angle, the sixth trumpet. What's it telling us? What's it showing us? This is the, this is the one where he says, okay, after that whole scene with the demon locust, and if that wasn't strange enough, here's what God showed me next. Now he switches to this other camera, and I see the river Euphrates, and I see... Four angels that had been bound up in the river Euphrates being loosed. And out of there I see 200 million something, man, beast, some kind of army coming out. Here's actually specifically what he says. Um, Here's the point in your notes. God intends that physical death on earth will serve as a final trumpet. Warning us to prepare for the afterlife before it's too late. God's intention for the whole idea behind physical death... The fact that it even exists, why we're not immortal, is that death in and of itself, the fear that we have of death, the reality of it, the unanswerables about death, will be yet another trumpet that says, I better prepare my life for what's next and get things in order now rather than face the unknown. That's that's why we have death. It wasn't his initial plan, but it's part of God's judgment. Here's what you see in chapter 9. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. There's so much to say there. You're just going to have to dig into that on your own. I don't have time to go into it this morning. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound to the great Euphrates River. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this. This is the important part, I think. These angels had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year. There's some specific time ideas in God's mind about all of this. They were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on the earth. What do we mean by one-third? Is it either literal or figurative? We're not sure, but here's what it means. Most of of the people on the earth are still not being judged. Judgment has still not fallen on the majority of the world at this point. God's beginning to show judgment, but it's not on the majority. It's on enough people for us to get an idea. A third, one out of every three people? Um, and I'll, I'll dial this in more in a second, but what he's showing us is that whether it's a third, whether it's literal or symbolic, what he's saying many but not all, not even most of the people at this point in the story are suffering under that kind of the judgment of God. He says, and in my vision I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark, blue and yellow. The horses had head like lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. One third of all the people on the earth were killed by these plagues, by the fire and smoke and burning sulfur. Is he talking about a thermonuclear attack? We don't know. Maybe. Maybe. 
Maybe not. We don't know. Uh, the flame that came out of the, the, mouth, the, the mouths of the horses. Their power was in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. Again, this is just really interesting. I've seen people draw pictures of this. They're very scary. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent. They still refuse to repent. So what are we seeing here? Here we see four angels which are heretofore up to this point bound up in the Euphrates River. And now they are released by God. God releases them. They were bound because he bound them up, but he bound them up until a specific day, hour, and time. In other words, what God is saying, history doesn't tell God when God acts. Governments do not tell God. President Trump, China, Joker over in North Korea, they don't tell God when God acts. God has decided when God will act. We see this here. This is not man accelerating or decelerating to the end. God has decided, and what God has decided, he will do when he's good and ready to do it because he's God. That's what he gets to tell us here. So uh, in the first century, uh, well, in the Old Testament, here's what they would have heard this. The Old Testament, the Euphrates River was a geographic border of Israel. In the New Testament, in the first century, the Euphrates River formed the outer limits of the border of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire went up to the Euphrates River, but no further. So the initial hearers would have understood this trumpet to say, somebody outside the borders of your kingdom is going to attack you. They would have heard it that way. Some outside force. Now, it's not going to be a civil war. It's going to be an outsider that's going to come and invade us. And this 200 million man army is able to shoot from their heads while attacking. And also while they're retreating, they're able to shoot from their tails. Is John being literal or symbolic? We're not told. There seems to be a special power God has reserved to let loose on the world. Is it Russia? Is it China? There was an article in Time Magazine several years ago that, that said that, that got a lot of traction in the Christian community where it numbered China's army had now reached 200 million people. We said, aha, we've cracked the code, it's China. And it might be. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us who it is, where it's coming from. What we can say is that there is a force in reserve ready to move at the day, the hour, the month, and the year of God's specific command. What's almost too hard to swallow is that after all this destruction of this trumpet, along with all the other camera shots we've seen so far of the seals and the trumpets, what's almost too hard to swallow is that the majority of mankind, having seen all this, will still refuse to repent and turn to God. I don't think we need to wait another X amount of years to see that already happening, do we? Has any of the death we've already seen, have any of the diseases we've already seen, have any of the plagues that we've already seen, have any of the fear of nuclear holocaust, has any of that really called massive worldwide turn to Christ? So why would more of it do any more of the same, how would just turning up the dials on this make people any more receptive to the gospel? God shows us as the church to be prepared for the fact that many people will still refuse. That doesn't mean that all will. Because you also see alluded to in the scripture that the gospel will be preached throughout the world in this time. And that we will see many, many, many come to repentance, but there will still be many who don't. So all that have at this point, God already appealed to the world through the cross of Christ, the love of God, the love of the church, through signs and wonders. All those have failed to win the vast segment of humanity to God. And since God is determined to eradicate sin, rebellion, and disobedience once and for all, he resorts to another act of judgment to the world 
to try and bring us all to repentance. And shockingly, what we see is that instead of seeing God's judgments as invitations to those who remain to repent, to turn to God and to escape his wrath, there is no repenting. Life remarkably goes on unchanged after all these traumas take place. There's a statement here that a third of mankind is going to be killed. I looked up last year, 2016, 59 million people worldwide died, 58.88. 59 million people died across, across uh, the world. That's, I'm, that's, a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of people. A third of mankind would be like two and a half billion people. So if 59 million people died last year, my question is, has that motivated anybody to repent? If, if we break that down further, every 1.9 seconds, somebody dies. With every finger snap, somebody in the world is dying. People are right now dying all around us all the time. Every day. Every two seconds. Has that motivated anybody to repent? I guess my point is whether it's one-third of the earth dying all at one time or whether it takes 16 years for a third of the earth to die, the fact that remains that God intends all of us to understand that physical death is a reminder of God's final judgment. It's his judgment on human life itself. It's his judgment for sin, and God has no way of bringing us into his presence because of sin. So death must eventuate. We have to have that. So whether this means that all that 2 billion people are going to die at one time or whether 2 billion people die over 15 years, the end result is that death is not causing many people to turn to repentance now. So why would we think it would be any different then? Point number three. The angel with the little scroll. Here's what I think this is telling us. For the true believer, the final trumpet is both sweet, because she'll be with Christ, and bitter, because she knows many will perish. As was the case between the opening of the sixth and seventh seals, there's a break. There's now a break in the action between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And I suggested two reasons for it. I'll just say, again, parenthetically. One possibility is that God's reluctant to open, this, to sound the seventh trumpet because it means the end of the age of grace. According to 2 Peter 3.9, the opportunity for grace is, is finished with the seventh trumpet. However, there's another thing that could be happening during this pause um, and the other thing that happens during this pause is that the people of God are still around and they're asking God two questions. Number one, how long before these judgments are done? How long do we have to see our world decay? How long until we get to experience heaven? How long, God, will you allow evil seem to propagate? How long will you allow injustice? How long will you allow hate? How long will you allow war and slavery and, and anger and bigotry and evil and bullying and materialism and greed and sexual sin? How long will you allow it? And then the second question they have is, and what should we be doing while it's going on? And God answers both those questions. He answers the first question in chapter 10. He answers the, of, of how long. And in, in chapter 11, he shows, and what should the church be doing during this time? He answers that in chapter 11. If we're honest with ourselves, we're probably a little shaken by the events we read in chapters 8 and 9. You see images of Holocaust, impossible thermonuclear attacks, demonic invasion, 200 million man army, all destroying a third of the earth. So for believers being terrorized and feeling Scared out of our minds about those images, chapter 10, chapter 10 is like a relief. And chapter 10, we see a mighty angel coming out of heaven. It's like God is reminding all of us there's enough strength in one angel to wipe out an entire 200 million man army. In his hand, he has a scroll. It's short and it's open. Time is short and there's little left to say. 
the angel has two messages to bring. He brings one that's a universal message to all of us in verses 1 through 7. He has another personal message to John in verses 8 through 11. To the whole church, the angel tells us that as believers, listen, it might look bad out there, but there is nothing to fear in this world. The world can throw all of its power at you. The world can throw all the terror of hell at you. The terror of the demonic, all of the terror of hell can be unleashed in the world, but the people still have The people of God still have the power of God. To John, he's told not to record what there's this need. He's not to record what the seven thunders said. John said, I heard something being said by the seven thunders. I got ready to write it down, and they said, Don't write that down. Did you catch that in here? There's a part of Revelation John has shown, and he wants to write it down. He doesn't write it down, but he tells us that there's something that he knows that we don't know, and he's not writing it down. And I promise you, some of you, a couple of you might catch us. I promise you there's a few people that probably know what he wrote down. They've written books. They're having big conferences. I know what wasn't written down. No, you don't. Please. What God's saying is, listen, I'm not showing you all my cards. There's some mystery left in this plan. Don't think you figured it all out. There's some things you just don't know, and I'm completely cool with that. I'm glad we don't have all the answers to everything. I probably couldn't handle it anyway. This is a guarantee that nobody will ever quite get all of these events and symbols exactly matched up before the end occurs. So the people ask, how long? I've asked God, how long will you allow? How long will you stand by and watch this country deteriorate? How long will you allow the world to mock you? How long will you allow this entire earth to decide? We know better than God about what gender we are, who we can like, who we can love, how we reproduce, what we can clone, who's in charge. How long are you going to deal with this? And the angel reminds us that there will indeed be a divine announcement that there will be no more delay. The question is not in the hands of man to answer, but in the hands of God to answer When the seventh trumpet sounds, this age of grace will be over. So John eats the scroll and finds it at first sweet and then bitter. The word of God being sweet makes sense. But in what sense is it bitter? The bitterness is the bitterness that a believer experiences when he or she realizes that God is indeed going to bring this age to a close. I know I will be with Christ. But it also means that many, many people I know and I love and I care about They still have not responded to the message. So when John thinks about that, it at first seems sweet to him. But on the other hand, as he begins to digest all of its implications, it's exceedingly bitter. It's no light thing to say that Jesus is coming. It's a word of hope to the church, but a word of judgment to the world. So as the worship team comes, final question for you. I'm not going to sugarcoat the final question. I... This final question is inspired by me really studying this chapter, and I want it to stand on on its own, and I want it to be, I want it to penetrate because I want to carry the tone of revelation. This is a hard message to be humorous about. It's a hard message to smile through. But I do want to leave you with this question, and I especially want to address those of you that are unresolved about matters of faith. You're unresolved about Jesus, God, this God, Christianity. You're unresolved. Let me appeal to you, if you've stuck this far in the message and you've tracked with me, you haven't clicked out yet, let me ask you this question. If the reality of the cross was not enough to convert you, and God's unending, limitless love that he has lavished upon you, if that's not enough to convince you to repent and turn to him, and the love that you've received from the Christians God's placed in your life is not enough. And the truth of the Bible that stands alone, untoppled, if that's not enough, then is there not enough trauma in life already 
to bring you to repentance. If you have somehow find a way to reject all of the loving, gracious, truthful, merciful expressions of God's love in the way that he's tried to show you, I exist, I love you, I want to be with you and only you forever, I want us to be inseparable. If all of creation's groaning and every person assigned to speak that into your life, if you found a way to resist all of us, then let's turn that coin on the other side. Is there not enough brokenness in this world and in your life? And is, is there not enough trauma? Is there not enough taste of judgment in your life to convince you to repent? The kindness of love is meant to, the kindness of God is meant to draw us to Jesus. The judgment of God is meant to draw us to Jesus. Both of those things are expressions of who God is. Some of us like a message that's more heavy on the judgment side. Yeah, pastor, go get them. You know, let them know about, you know, let them know about how bad it is and we need, need to know. I don't say that with joy in my heart, but at the same time, I do agree that it's fair and responsible for us to say there is judgment. Hell is not some crazy idea. Hell is a place that God never wanted people to go but it is a place of absolute separation from God. It's not a long, heavy metal concert with, all, with an open bar. It is torment and suffering and separation from God forever. It's irreversible. God doesn't want anyone to go there. But he is also simultaneously a kind and a loving God who said, I love you enough that I will try to satisfy all of my wrath and I will satisfy it by myself coming to the earth. I will send me I will send my son Jesus who will take the form of a man and he will step up and he will bear all of my anger. He will bear all of my wrath and he'll do it for you so that you don't have to if you so choose. You have a choice. We will all stand before God one day, every single one of us. And at that point, it will be too late to change our mind. Yes, every, read the passage, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But that happens at the judgment seat of Christ. That happens not from a bunch of Christians singing a hymn in church. That's when every man, woman, boy, and girl will have to say, as a matter of fact, it is truth. He is Lord. But for many people, that confession will be insufficient to save them because it will come too late. You and I will stand before God either completely aided and covered in Christ and as accepted and loved before him as Jesus is today or completely unaided and unprotected thinking that our righteousness somehow is enough for him to accept us. Friend, if you can hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. Listen to the trumpets. Listen to the signs. Look at the seals. And then look at the cross and see that there is a way for you to be saved. There is a way for you to be safe. There is a way for you to be sealed. That's what God wants for you. Will you please open up your heart and let him in today as we pray? Let's bow our hearts before him this morning. Without any further delay, if you know that today is the day that you need to receive salvation from Jesus Christ, now is that time. The time is here, my friend. Let me lead you forward. I'm going to tell you the how-tos of how that happens. It's no more or no less than what the Bible tells us. Simple as A, B, C. A, you admit that Jesus is everything he says that he is, and you admit that you're everything he says that you are. That B, you believe. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And most importantly, that He raised 
from the dead, that he was fully dead and that he fully came back to life and is alive today. See, you choose. You choose for Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And you choose you will no longer be the Lord of your own life. You cannot negotiate any of those points. But you don't have to do more than that. You don't have to put an offering in the collection plate today. You don't have to sign up to join this church. You don't have to do a whole bunch of uh, good works. or kind of, You don't have to do anything else for Jesus to accept you. That's what the whole world's doing right now. And if that were the case, then we could earn our own salvation, but we can't. It's given freely by grace, freely through the death of Jesus. So I want to lead you forward in that. Can I invite you, if that's a decision you're ready to make today, will you pray this prayer along with me this morning? I can't pray it for you, but I can give you a reference prayer, an example prayer, that if you'll pray this along with me, you can rest assured that God is hearing your prayer and you're receiving the gift of salvation. A prayer that sounds like this. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I admit that I'm a sinner. I've been living life my own way. I see now that that is wrong. I desperately need to be forgiven for my disobedience. Thank you for making that possible by dying on the cross. I accept your forgiveness over my life today. And now I am forgiven. And I feel forgiven. And I'm going to live like I'm forgiven. I also believe that you're alive today. You defeated death. I need a living Lord, not a dead historic figure. So I choose that now I live life your way, not my way, your way. And I can say that because I trust your character is pure. And you're going to lead me in the direction of a life that is fulfilling and satisfying and pleasing for me. I'm glad to be saved and I'm glad to be safe. I look forward to following you every moment of this life. You've chosen for me to live. In your name I pray. Amen.